Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. It is my honor and privilege to invite you once again to the Gospel of John, where we are making our way verse by verse through this uh, magnificent gospel. The point of this gospel is the point of this series, which is to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to have life by believing in his name. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we'll be in John chapter 3. You're welcome to use one that is in the pew ahead of you. It's uh, page 888, I believe, in the Pew Bible. John chapter 3, I'm going to read, it's a long passage, we're going to start in verse 22, and uh, Lord willing, make it all the way down to the end of the chapter. So it's a big chunk, um, and it should be 45 minutes or so, we'll save some time at the end for communion. Good to be with you this morning. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22, I'm going to read down to verse 36, and uh, then I'll pray. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Would you pray with me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This 
which we have just read, is your most holy word. And now, most holy God, would you grant your most holy spirit to come to enlighten us, to give us understanding, to take what is of Jesus and declare it to us. Would you give us understanding? Would you give us grace? Would you help us to apply this passage? Would you do this for your sake? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christianity is upside down. One of the reasons we know Christianity is true and that it is not a man-made religion is that no person would invent one that works like this. Human beings are attracted to power and approval, comfort, and control. And the foundational principles of Christianity render individuals powerless, make them rejected sufferers who are in control of almost nothing. More than that, those who seek power and approval and comfort and control are generally the ones who are furthest from the kingdom of God. So no person invents a religion that works like this. It's upside down. Within Christianity, leaders are servants. You find life by dying. You don't retaliate, you turn the other cheek. You don't hate your enemy, you love your enemy, you bless your enemy. Richness is found not in acquiring things, but in giving them away. God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. To be clean on the outside, you must be clean on the inside. Nothing that we invent works like this. More than that, the punishment for the penalty of disobeying God was placed on another. And to be right before a holy God, you don't do right things. You believe in the one who did. All of this feels upside down. The passage before us teaches us three more fundamentally upside-down things about the kingdom of God. Like so much of Christianity, it is counterintuitive. So this is how it's teed up. I'm going to point out three different principles about the kingdom of God which are upside-down to us. And they are these. You can follow along in your handout if you like. Number one, nothing is earned because everything is given. Number two, it's better to give than it is to receive. Number three, God has connected your joy in this life to his increase and your decrease. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive. But it's the reality of the kingdom of God. And then we're going to end verse 31 to 36 explaining why all of these things are true. I'll show you why the kingdom of God is not upside down. It's right side up, but we're the ones who are upside down. So let's get to work. 
verse 22 down to 27. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there and he was baptizing there. Although we find out in chapter four, it wasn't actually Jesus who was baptizing his disciples who were doing the baptizing. John was baptizing at a different place in Anon near Salem, a couple of miles away because the water there was plentiful. He had lots of people coming to him being baptized and he had not yet been put into prison. That happens later. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and and a Jew. Uh, over an issue of purification. And they came to John, this is his disciples come to John, and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, he's also baptizing like you are. And everyone's going to his ministry. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So let's set up the scene. John the Baptist uh, reappears here at the end of chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. Um, John, we have met him before. We met him in chapter 1. What he was doing there in chapter 1 is the same thing he's doing here. He's baptizing. John the Baptist is a preacher. And he calls himself the voice. The voice. Not because Blake Shelton thought he could sing well, but the voice because he preaches He announces the coming of the Messiah. That's what the voice did, and that's who John was. John preached repentance to Israel. And many heard him, and many came to get right with God, and they were baptized. John, as we have learned, lived in the woods, wore camel skin vest, ate bugs. And his ministry was huge. The Bible says that people came from all over to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. The Bible says that religious leaders in, uh, in the day, they would come to John to discuss religious matters. The Bible even says that Herod, Antipas, knew who John was. He was a Roman official. He was the son of Herod the Great. He knew who John was. And the Bible says he was afraid of John. He was influential. Giant ministry. Lots of people. Very influential. And then one day, John's disciples, they started noticing their rabbi's ministry. It was diminishing. The, suddenly, the church wasn't as full. There were seats in the back that were unfilled. and The lines to the baptismal were shorter, and ministry time didn't last as long. And the reason? There's competition. There's a new baptizer in town. A couple of miles away, Jesus of Nazareth is preaching, doing miracles, and baptizing. And Jesus' ministry was growing. And John's ministry was dying. And then some fella comes along to the disciples, and he has some disagreement about purification We're not told exactly what it is. Likely it had something to do with the method, the mode of baptism that John was using. I I really don't know what the reason was. John doesn't, John the the, the apostle doesn't tell us. But this obviously got the disciples thinking. Why was John's ministry shrinking? 
I mean, this, this, this guy down the road, a couple of miles, his ministry's blown up. And my master's ministry is, is starting to die. If John were an American celebrity, his publicist would undoubtedly be concocting some crisis or something to get him back in the news. Go on a crazy spending spree and then shave your head. You know, go wild on the paparazzi with a golf club. You'll get in the news. You got to figure something out. You can't die. You, your ministry, your impact, your influence, it can't go away. For those seeking an audience, nothing is worse than obsolescence. John's disciples are a bit in a bit of a panic at this point. You got to reinvent the ministry or something. Maybe people aren't into bug eaters anymore. It was cool for a little while, but now it's a little weird. Maybe the guy down the street is doing it better. I mean, that guy makes wine at a party. Maybe we got to get into the winemaking business. Maybe that's our game. We got to get into the wine game. That's what draws the crowd. A couple of years ago, I had a pastor tell me, that as we were starting this church and it was being planted and we had a core group and things were, seemed to be going well, I had a pastor tell me, you know, you got to be, begin planning right now to reinvent your ministry in about five years. You got to reinvent the ministry. And I thought, what a, I'm not even sure I understand what that means. Like, I didn't invent the first one. How am I going to reinvent it? How do you reinvent something you didn't invent? I don't know. I'm just going to keep preaching Jesus and seeing Christ formed in people. And either I die or you die, then it's done. (laughs) I don't know. If no one shows up, I'll go somewhere else and do it. There's just no other options for me. I don't need to read. I don't know. Maybe I do need to reinvent things, but it doesn't seem like I do. John's disciples are in a panic, but not John. Did you catch that? Their master's ministry is shrinking, but that doesn't bother him whatsoever. Look at verse 27. Look what he says. A person cannot receive even even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Anyone, anything that anyone has is by providence. It was given. What we assume is earned is actually given. Nothing is earned. Not even one thing. Everything is given. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This is how he puts it. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Nothing is earned. Everything is given by God. So that means power and prominence and position. It's all by providence. Given, not gotten. How this brutalizes the capitalistic notions in our heart. I mean, capitalism may have some merit. You work hard, you earn your way. Competition autocorrects corruption. May the best man win. But kingdom economics, they don't work like that. 
Everything is given, nothing is earned. And that's counterintuitive. It's upside down. But can you see how the way that everything is, is given to us and nothing is earned by us, can you see how freeing that is? If nothing is earned, first of all, there's no room for boasting. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4? There's no room for boasting. If it's given to you, you don't boast over something that's given to you. That'd be like that kid, in, that rich kid in middle school who boasted about what he got for Christmas. That, nobody likes that kid. Your parents bought that. Why do you boast over what your parents bought for you? It also means there's no reason to be jealous. The providence of God, it cures the human heart of envy and jealousy. If everything was given, you don't have to be afraid that it's going to be taken from you. It was given to you. If it was given to you by grace and not by anything you've done to deserve it, then who cares if someone takes it away? You don't have to be jealous over that. And you don't have to be envious over what someone else has because you know that they have what they have because providence gave it to them, because God gave it to them based on grace. Which, which means that we're free from looking at others, comparing ourselves to them, and thinking, God doesn't love me as much as them. Or I haven't done as much for God to deserve that. It's so freeing. Nothing is earned. Everything is given. This is how Job, in Job chapter 1, can say, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Finish it for me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all by grace. Don't have to fight for it. Don't have to earn it. True freedom is not free market economics. True freedom is not having to jostle and fight and position yourself for something you deserve. True freedom is that whatever we have, we have in the Lord. And what we have is, is given to us, and we steward those things that are given to us. We work hard. We trust the Lord, knowing that everything came from Him. All is by grace. We didn't deserve anything. So there's no room for jealousy. There's no room for envy. No room for boasting. That's Christian freedom. So when you're up for a promotion at work, recite John 3:27 to yourself. When you're looking for a new job, recite John 3:27. When her husband takes her to dinner and yours won't get off the couch, recite John 3.27. This verse, friends, the reason I'm dwelling on it, it is a, is a Brillo pad for my soul. It scrubs away all the grime and dirt of self-promotion political positioning. It scrubs away the dirt of vain metrics like website traffic 
like attendance numbers, like bank balances, like square footage, like vacation spots, like brand names. Hear my plea, friends. John 3.27, live in that verse. Not one thing is earned. Everything is given. Live under that waterfall of grace. That's what it means to be free. And it feels upside down, doesn't it? Let that verse stand you right side up. Number two. Giving is better than receiving. Verse 28 to 29, the first part. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What I love about John the Baptist is that this is a man who knows so much about what he is not. I tried drawing that out in chapter 1 when we went through that passage. John is not, but Jesus is. John says, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the light. I'm the voice. He's all about what he is not. You see, something happens when we encounter God, when we meet God. When you see God, one of the first things that occurs to you, (laughs) I don't belong here. I don't, I shouldn't be here. Whatever that is, I'm not that. Whoever that is, I'm not like that. This is a bad place for me to be in the presence of that holy one. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but the word holy, that's exactly what that means. It means different from. It means other than. It means greater than, higher than. It means whatever that is, I'm not that. And the angels, they go around the throne and they say that over and over and over again because they see him from every angle and every time they go around, they say, I've never seen anything like this. Holy. John saw Jesus. And this is what he knows about himself. I'm not like him. And he uses a metaphor to explain how he is not like him. Here's what he says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. The bride doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. I'm just the friend here. I'm the best man. I toast him. He doesn't toast me. I'm just here to stand here and to make sure everything works. And that the bride gets to the bridegroom. In ancient Jewish culture, the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, had a, a job of sorts. He, he was to organize and to get things ready to make sure that the bride would meet the bridegroom, that the ceremony would go off without a hitch. And John is saying, that's all I do. I make sure the bride's ready for her bridegroom. She doesn't belong to me. 
She's not mine. She's not in love with me. She's in love with him. She's not walking down the aisle to me. Notice what John says makes him rejoice in verse 29. This, this part hit me pretty hard this week. John says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. What is he rejoicing at? The bridegroom's what? His voice. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. And you see now John is rejoicing at a different voice. He's not the voice people listen to anymore. Jesus is now the voice. And now, what does John do? He rejoices. He's delighted. Our job as followers of Christ is to make disciples for Christ. Not disciples for Jamie, not disciples for Corey, disciples for Christ. Everything I do as your pastor is to spend my life to see Christ formed in you, to prepare you to meet your bridegroom. You're not mine, you're his. I get to serve you, but you belong to the Lord. And the moment I forget that is the moment I disqualify myself as your pastor. Because then I'm just using you, aren't I? I'm just using you for my own approval, whatever. You don't belong to me. We don't make a following for ourselves. We don't make a name for ourselves. We show people Jesus and we spread the renown of his name. And that's upside down. Generally, people do things to get a voice, to get a following, to get influence, and to get control. Generally, we avoid things that take influence away and approval away and comfort away and control away. But that's because we're upside down. And so we ought to let this passage set us right side up. Number three. God has connected your joy to his increase and your decrease. Verse 29 and 30. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If your joy would be full, this must take place in your life. Christ must be lifted up and you must be brought down. That might be the most counterintuitive truth in this passage. Might be the most counterintuitive truth in your life. Your joy is fullest when Christ is greatest and you are least. God has connected your joy in this life to his glory through your life. The higher Christ is, the lower you are, the more joy you will find. 
I'm not good at math, but that seems like a bad formula. Most Christians that I know believe that the glory of God is the main thing. I think any honest Christian would say, you know, the church exists, Christians exist to glorify God, to lift him up, to make, to make the glory of God in Christ big, high, good. He must increase. I think most Christians would agree with that. But in practice, that's tricky. Because there's two parts to that statement. And generally what we mean by he must increase is, and I must increase with him. He's going to take me with him on his ascent, right? He's going to go into glory and I'm going with him. What we generally think is, the more I glorify God, the more he will glorify me. I don't know if you think that, but I sure do. I don't like the reality or the thought that God might leave me in a menial, unremarkable life of servants and just day-to-day things. I prefer to look at myself as fairly remarkable. I look at myself in the mirror and I remark, what a remarkable person. What if your life were a movie and you were not to star in that movie? What if you didn't get top billing in your movie? Jesus got top billing. What if you didn't even make it onto the movie poster? What if you read the script and you learned that your part was an extra? There's no Oscars for extras. What if you read this script and the screenwriter made it so that your character exists solely to decrease, to make the main character look even brighter? Would you take that part? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a hard little word, must. Carries with it. Like inevitability. I want to be the exception. I don't like inevitability to decrease. Seems like a sovereign God has ordered his universe in that way. He must increase. I must decrease. John's saying, I can't can't crowd the stage. The lights are going to go dark. The spotlight's going to come on. And it's got to hit Jesus. And I got to be nowhere in sight. And he says in this, my joy is full. Often... I find it to be a long and hard road accepting that fact. That God has ordered his universe to work in such a way that Jesus is glorified instead of me. 
And that when Jesus is glorified instead of me, my joy is complete. When we seek our own glory, sanctification is stalled and holiness is halted and joy is lost. And this is upside down. But that's because we are. Let this passage set you right side up. And now we come in verse 31 to 36 to the reason why. Without verse 31 to 36, um, John is totally incoherent. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The reason this makes any sense at all is because of who Jesus is. The reason the world doesn't understand these principles is because the world has not seen Jesus. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know, they've never met him. They don't know him. But we've met him. And we know why these things are true. We've seen him. Oh, we have a hard time living it out, friends, but we know it's true. Because once you've seen Jesus, you've seen He's right side up. We're the ones upside down. Last paragraph. We'll wrap on this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That God is true. Setting a seal is uh, it's an old way of saying, you know, like you ever watch those old movies where the king would like mail out something like a scroll or some, some letter and they would fold the papers together and they would take this little thing and they would dip it in wax and have this special insignia on it and they would stamp it on there. And that's a seal. That's what he's saying. You're, you're saying this is true. Setting your seal to this, that God is true. Let's keep reading. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Three things briefly about Jesus that make all of what I said before make sense. Three things about Jesus will help set us to right side up. First, where Jesus came from. Notice that. Jesus comes from above. He is above all. He came from above. He's above all. We, we're from earth. We speak in an earthly way. We understand the world from our earthly perspective. And Jesus, he sees from his perspective, from heaven. He looks down and sees how things work. He's the heavenly one. He is higher than all. And his understanding is higher than all. So it would only make sense that when he speaks of an upside down world, he's seeing it from above. So he knows that it's upside down. Last night, I was working in uh, the house we just bought. We were renovating it. And I was 
frustrated, flustered, that things were just taking longer than they should have and things weren't working out like I wanted them to. And I'm just, I'm just in it, flustered and frustrated. And my dad was there and thankfully he was there to, to he's an outside and he can look in on the situation and be like, it's going to be okay. I mean, chill out. It's going to be all right. And he offers me that perspective from the outside that I couldn't see because I was in it. We're from the earth. We can't see the way the world works because we're in it. Like you can't tell how well the battle is going because you're fighting one-on-one with someone. It isn't until you go up in the air and you can see across that the, the forces of light are pushing back the forces of darkness. You need above perspective to see that. This is what he's saying. He comes from above. He is above all. His perspective is from heaven. He speaks of what he sees from heaven. And so what he says is true, which is the second thing. What he says is true. Bears witness to what he has seen. He speaks of what he has seen. Through Jesus, we know God. We know God is true because Jesus speaks the words of God. His words have eternal life. There's no life in our words. There's life in his word. So he comes from above, he sees from above, he speaks of what he has seen, he speaks to us, what he says to us is God's words. That's number two. Three, what he gives. The third reason it makes, all, makes sense is because of what Jesus gives. Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus comes from above, he comes to us, he speaks God's word to us. And he gives life. John says, all things, all things are in his hands. So let's suppose that that is true. Let's suppose that all things that God made, he has given to his son. He controls it all. He owns it all. Would it make sense that the world would work like he says it works? It's his world. He made it. So what he says about his world that he made, shouldn't that be true? And it is. Wouldn't it make sense that if he says we're upside down, we're upside down. He is the source of eternal life. And if we would have life, we must have Christ. And without Christ, there is no life. The wrath of God remains. So let's put it all together. God sent his son into the world to testify about the truth of God, to bear the wrath of God for sin and to rise again. And then he grants eternal life to hell-deserving sinners who place their trust in him. Because of this, because of this, nothing is earned because he did it. Because of this, giving is better than receiving because he gave it. And because of this, joy is in his increase because of who he is. You know this is true if you've seen him. Have you seen him? I hope you have. Let's pray. Father, turn us right side For the sake of your son. I pray that these words that we have heard this morning. 
they would bear fruit in our life. I pray that in these moments as we celebrate and remember the cross, that you would use this time to expose in us our negligence, our striving for control and comfort and influence and approval. And then you would grant us to be forgiven as we confess those sins. Give us a new heart this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I have the privilege to lead you in communion. Last Sunday of every month, we do communion. As you know, Memorial Day is about remembering those who died to bring freedom. Communion is about remembering the one who died to bring us the ultimate freedom. But I have to say this. We, we practice open communion here at Cornerstone. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if you've confessed your sins and put your faith in him, you are welcome at the Lord's table. We would be delighted to celebrate communion with you. However, if you're still working on that, if you're still not real sure if you're a Christian, then I just ask that you take a rain check and just wait. There's no shame in that. Just if you have questions about it, hit me up after. This is a precious gift of grace that God has given to his people.